welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I am delighted to welcome Caroline Donaldson, who is Managing Director of the West Coast Partnership Development Shadow Operator for High Speed 2. Since joining Railtrack in 1999, at a time when the industry was still recovering from the impacts of privatisation, Caroline has held a series of senior posts, including winning the West Coast franchise competition, not once but twice as bid director for First Group. She now leads the development of the High Speed 2 Shadow Operator for First Trenitalia, which in my view is one of the most exciting programmes happening in transport at the moment. I always find Caroline's insights interesting and I hope that you enjoy our conversation on this episode of Intuitive Insights. Caroline, hello. It's absolutely um, joy to see you. Thank you for joining me on the Intuitive Insights podcast. Um, I was having a think before we started the uh, recording the podcast today when I first met you and I had to take my mind back to the DFT Rail Industry Day at the QE2 Conference Centre, which I think was April 2014. Oh, you could be right. I was quite new to the industry and um, and I'd got an invitation, I've no idea how, but somebody invited me and all of a sudden I was surrounded by what felt like the great and the good of the rail industry. It was very exciting. And that's where you and I met. And obviously we've met many times since then. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear more about your career and kind of getting that story out there today. So going into um, the podcast and talking about your career uh, I know at the moment obviously you're managing director for West Coast Partnership Development for the shadow operator for High Speed 2. I know how hard you worked to get that one over the line so I was so delighted for you when the news came in that um, that First Group and Trenitalia had won that bid. Very exciting. Um, but can we go back a bit? Can we go back into into the history books a little bit and tell me about how you got into the rail industry in the first place um, and your career bringing to you to where you are today? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I guess like a lot of people, Nina, the initial triac- uh, attraction wasn't so much uh, the industry as, as the role so I joined Rail Track in 1999, um, and I was attracted to that opportunity um, through a newspaper advert, actually. But, but what really um, excited me about the opportunity, um, I suppose, was the, the opportunity to make a real difference um, in an industry which of itself makes such a significant difference to people's quality of life. Um, and uh, it, it did prove to be an exceptionally interesting um, opportunity because I actually ended up joining about two weeks after the um, the sad Paddington rail crash um, at that time. But of course, it was an enormous time of change for the company itself um, and for the industry. And since then, you know, we've improved um, on what was already a really good base, but some of the attention that's been paid to drive up safety, to drive up reliability and punctuality um, has been just great to be a part of. And there's always something challenging and interesting um, to be a part of. And I, I think that's just one of the great things about being uh, part of the rail business. Yeah, absolutely. So you joined Rail Track um, from a newspaper ad. I'm interested to know 
whether when you landed what was surprising or what or did you get what you expected or is the rail industry quite different to what you might have thought before you joined yeah that's a really good question actually and one i haven't thought about that for a long while so i'm going to have to cast my mind back and to 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 a good 20 years um shall we say um, I think I'm not sure I had any specific expectations, but but I suppose for like most customers, because that's what I'd been previously, um, because the railway you know has a minute to the minute timetable, um, I, I expected that to have a really big um, uh, influence, if you like, on on the way the business runs, and and of course a lot of it is, and so you've got a huge focus. Um, on on delivering the same thing day in day out, you know, in a good way, um, and, and quite rightly, and in some cases a kind of military precision um, about that. But on the other hand, I think it was relatively recent. You know, it's just a few years after privatisation, and the industry was still recovering, you know, from the pulling apart effectively of British Rail um, into you know hundreds of different companies, and actually a lot of the processes. And the commercial arrangements around all of that were still really people were were trying to work out, you know, how did it work? What was the right skill sets that were needed? So you had this big kind of contrast um, between in, in, in operational terms, an industry that really knew what it was doing. But much of the kind of wider management was, was still really um, early stages of development. Yeah. And what an exciting time to be in the industry. And so so from being at rail track. What happened next? Where did you go? Um, well, it's sort of everything changed, but where I was really, I suppose. So as, as most people remember, that the rail track went through huge changes um, in the next couple of years, again, largely from, from the influence of, of, of some very sad um, uh, accidents, but, but ones that the industry used to kind of build and improve on. Uh, and of course, the, the Hatfield rail accident and the huge impact um, on the, the industry timetable um, and, and the recovery plan that was needed after that um, was, was, was a time of, I think, enormous learning because, uh, you know, people, we had to really put in place um, some, some, some really good industry-wide kind of project management and coherence and collaboration. And, you know, in a way... I think many of the businesses were almost particularly rail track fighting for its life and of course didn't actually um, survive um, through that. Um, and, and, and I undertook a number of, of different roles. Um, I started off on, on the strategy team but went through to the planning and, and, and more business um, development side and, and was actively engaged in some of the work that we did to, to try and get finances back in order for, for rail track. Um, and then uh, as RailTrack moved into administration, um, I was then very much working actually with Deutsche Bank and the administrators, um, Ernst & Young, uh, to put together plans to make uh, the future of, of what became Network Rail, um, you know, reality. So uh, put, 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 putting together some of the work and, of course, on the other side of that, the Network Rail team led by Ian Coucher were putting together a plan to bid for the business. Uh, and those things came together in, in the new rail track um, and uh, sorry in the new network rail um, and, uh, and 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 from then of course as, as network rail came in 
and, and the encounter led that huge program of, of transformation. Um, again, there were some, some, some huge challenges to deliver. So I got quite heavily involved actually in how we uh, might move forward maintenance and make it much more effective and much more efficient. Um, and from that came the plan to bring maintenance in house. And if you cast your eyes back, to, uh, mind back to 2004, uh, we brought uh, around 18 uh, maintenance contractors in house on the same day as we can completely flipped the organization from what was a regional um, and, and, and a locally based organization to something that was much more function, functionally based. And that all happened on, I think it was May the 24th, 2004. Right. So there you are, it's not by my, somebody watching this will probably tell me that's the wrong day. But anyway, that's how it's lost in it my happened mind. To you. Yeah. That's when it happened. And, um, and, and, and I was quite, you know, involved then at setting up, helping to set up the new maintenance organisation and, and from there moved into to transformation. And I spent a while as um, head of risk for uh, Network Rail um, and, and I had a bit of a background um, in that from my, my pre-industry um, days and we implemented a new risk management plan throughout our company. Um, and then I moved into transformation and I was leading the world class transformation program for a couple of years. Um, and until actually the time came, it was the right thing to do to move on. Um, so I went to uh, London Underground where I led another transformation program. That was when they were bringing Metronet in house. If you remember, the public private partnership had come to an end. Uh, Metronet came in house uh, and I was leading the uh, transformation of the uh, commercial and procurement um, functions. So that, that was quite interesting to see London Underground, um, which had many similarities with the culture and the operation, you know, as a railway, as it is, um, but was perhaps in a different space uh, in, in, in its time of development. Um, so, so that was a really interesting opportunity. I bet it was, I bet. Yeah. And to have come from the kind of the the track side of things to then start to experience that the, the more of the operational railway in a time of massive transformation um, it just must have been a, again just a really interesting and I would imagine quite a fast-paced kind of thing I, I don't think you've I don't reckon certainly as long as I've known you you definitely strike me as someone who's never worked a nine-to-five in your life these are massive jobs <laughs> jobs but um that you must get a huge amount of satisfaction from looking back and saying yeah i was a part of that yeah i i, th I think you're right i think that the, there's always time pressure isn't it because by definition if you're you know making changes and and and, and transforming activities then you're doing it to make improvements and you always want those as soon as possible um, so yeah, there never seems to be um, spare time. Um, although actually, ironically, of course, I, I you know I thought I knew about deadlines, but but my next role was then to join First Group um, as a bid director, mm. uh, and I realised I really knew nothing about deadlines <laughs> until I did that that role. And, and you know, obviously, bidding franchise bidding is is fairly notorious um, in, in in the industry. I mean, I was really lucky in that. Um, I should say fortunate rather than lucky, but but uh, for first group and the first rail division team um, has just a great bunch of people who who first of all are really good uh, and knowledgeable about the industry, and so it was a really good team to work with. 
Uh, and you know, my first uh, the first bid that I led, I had a lot of people around me who had done this this before. Um, and, and to be honest, we had a lot of fun doing it as well. I mean, it was really hard work, um, but but we did have a lot a lot of fun, and and that comes from working with people and working under deadline um, pressures. Mm. So which was the first um, bid, Caroline, when you, met, when you went to first group as bid director? Which was the first bid you worked on? Well, I actually was recruited to work on East Anglia because that's, uh, I lived in East Anglia for 30 to 40 years up to that point. Um, and I'd commuted um, for 10 years on, on, on from Ipswich into London. Um, but in fact, that was turned into um, an operations contract, which we decided not to bid for. So my first bid was the West Coast 2012 um, bid, which was obviously quite a key moment for franchise bidding um, in the industry. You know, we got to the end of that and um, uh, it was ultimately we'd, we'd won um, and been announced as the winners and then ultimately it was cancelled, which was obviously hugely um, disappointing, but also, as most people remember, uh, led to very significant reverberations through through the industry and it took another couple of years for franchising to get going um, again. Um, and, and then after that, I worked on, on the, um, the Thameslink bid uh, and then also on East Anglia. Uh, which finally came through as a full bid, thoroughly enjoyed doing that and still back on that as, as something very proud, actually. We didn't win, um, but, you know, you, you, sometimes that's not in, in your control. Um, but but we, we had a, um, a very capable um, and experienced team by then and, and really enjoyed that. Um, and then, as you say, uh, in 2018, uh, the additional challenge of, of the West Coast Partnership bid, which, which was, again, very exciting because... Yes, it was a franchise bid and it was for West Coast, um, but uh, to have the opportunity then to incorporate this shadow operator element, uh, which brings a degree of com complexity, but also huge opportunity and huge interest. It was great to have the opportunity to lead that. And of course, as you say, uh, last year to, to be announced as the uh, first group, first train Italia, um, as, as the winning bid um, was, was just great news, yeah, which yeah. has led on to today. So. Absolutely, yeah, and huge congratulations. I was over the moon for you when that announcement came through because I knew how much it meant to you personally as well as, as professionally. You know, you, you had to put your heart and soul into it. Um, so tell us about your job now. What does the MD of the Shadow Operator do every day? Um, I don't think there is an every day, actually, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess the first thing that most people will be asking is, well, what is the West Coast Partnership development? And, and as you said, a lot of people will have heard it being described as the shadow operator for High Speed 2. Uh, but we're still very much the new kid on the block. So uh, we're part of that West Coast Partnership, which was launched last December. And most people will be more familiar with the other side of the business, which is Avanti West Coast, of, of course, the intercity operator that, that connects some of the UK's biggest um, cities, London, Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, and others that I haven't uh, mentioned. Um, but the, the role of the, the shadow operator, West Coast Partnership Development, is, is very much about um, planning and delivering the high-speed services that will use the new high-speed to um, infrastructure. Um, and we'll also be working on the intercity and regional services that will need to change so that they complement and everything works together to give the customers the best possible service, really. Um, so as part of that, we're working really closely with High Speed 2 Limited themselves, 
um, with the Department for Transport, with Network Rail, uh, and also um, with people and communities all along the West Coast Main Line. So, you know, it, it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, and, 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 you know, it's the next chapter, if you like, in, in the rail story for, for, the, for, for Great Britain. Yeah. I think it's really exciting and I, I think when when we talk to candidates about um, West Coast partnership development it, it always for me my my description is that you started off with a blank piece of paper almost in terms of you, you are building this operating company and I know certainly some of the stuff that that I'm aware of that's in discussion feels like such an exciting opportunity to reimagine what the railway could look like and and obviously the whole industry is is now going through massive change and opportunity to reimagine but for the shadow operator that just feels like you're right up there in terms of knowing everything we know and everything we've learned what do we want this train operating company to look like and i just think that's an incredibly exciting piece of work um in terms of the whole industry and you know over over the last eight or nine months, obviously, it has been through um, a tumultuous time with the COVID um, pandemic, everything that's happened as a result of that. Um, so many people have said to me that they believe that that prevent, presents us as an industry with a huge opportunity. Um, it's quite time bound. I think we're kind of thinking 12 to 18 months to sort ourselves out, if you like, to, to make what... Um, to make some decisions and imagine what we what we can do. Um, what would you say are the key opportunities, Caroline? Looking at it from your perspective, what do you think are the opportunities for rail as we move forward now? Yeah, as you say, a huge time and a huge potential, uh, Nina. And I think what you know what, what's interesting is that that when when COVID hit, um, you know, we were on the, the industry was on the cusp of the changes to come through potentially from the Williams review um, and you know franchising has been massively you know really successful if you look back you know over those those 20 odd years since privatization um, you know the improvements that we've seen through investment in rolling stock and the improvements in customer experience and satisfaction and punctuality uh, and safety um, have, have, have been really um, amazing and of course actually what COVID, I think, has done to some extent is to accelerate now the opportunity to then move to a different franchising model um, and build again, you know, what's the next step change? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's really important that, that as you said, there's fairly sort of time-limited opportunity to, you know, get back to saying, well, what, what is that next, you know, customer improvement and, and how I think I think the real opportunity we need we need to make sure is, is is that we don't lose what the best of what we've had in the last 20 odd years. So you know if you look at the innovation and the commercial focus um, that that some you know we've been able to access some of that from the private sector. Um, so I think it's really important that we keep the ability and all of the good and strong capabilities that, that we've developed over, over the last 20 years. We don't go back to that level of immaturity that we saw um, at the beginning um, of franchising. Um, I think there's a, a really big opportunity around um, uh, pricing and ticketing. You know, we know 
the, the complexity of fares, the difficulties around um, split ticketing has generated a lack of trust with, with customers. They don't always feel they're getting the right ticket at the right price. And, and there's a big step change to come in terms of the digital uh, ticketing revolution. And I think, you know, as we've got this kind of almost pause in franchising, and, and whilst that's been very successful, it also puts limitations around what you can do, you know, in this, this five or seven year period. Um, that, that, that for me is probably the biggest opportunity that, that, that we can grasp. But, you know, there are other things as well. I think um, there are opportunities for our people um you know in, in helping them to move forward you know we've got to make sure that that the changes that are made you know do, do the right things for them so that we've got you know an attractive industry that gives people really fulfilling um careers and of course it does that to a great extent already but we've got to keep building on that and building the skills um you know so that people can feel that they're really sharing in that success and and they're a part of it you know not being done to if you like so i, I think that's another opportunity um, and, and then, you know, stakeholder um, engagement. I think the West Coast partnerships are really interesting. You know, it, it does set a new framework for the way that we engage with stakeholders, um, that, that, that some of our incentives are built around that. And of course, that's been widened through the recent um, contractual arrangements that, that, that DFT have put in place for the recovery agreements. So I think it'd be really good to see us building on that and finding new ways, you know, so that we're making sure that, that what the rail industry delivers is connecting towns and cities in the right way and, and meeting their aspirations for economic growth, which of course, you know, post COVID, accelerating that economic growth and getting the benefits that rail, you know, brings is, is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen a few, um, uh, webinars and seminars and, and things over the last few months where you've been involved in talking about those the growth in communities along the west coast line i think this this such this this feels like a whole different conversation for me um because so i've been working in the rail industry for eight years now so i'm still very much the new girl um but i think i it took me to come into it to understand how integral it is to the economy um, I was also one of the massive surprises for me was how political it is, um, how much the politicians get involved in the in the industry was a surprise for me. But I've been really encouraged by all of the um, the information that's coming out, all the conversation about bringing those communities together and how the West Coast mainline can support the growth of the economy. There's some really positive mm -hmm. conversations happening around that, um, which, you know, is is really great to see. And I'm with you on the people bit as well. And, you know, I have, I've been described as an evangelist for rail. So I'm kind of all about getting people to come and work for the sector. But I think um, as an industry, we've probably kept it a big secret that there are really exciting roles to do in rail. Um, and so the more that secret's getting out, it's quite interesting for me, people wanting to um, identify roles within rail who, you know, certainly four or five years ago, we would have had to try really hard to encourage them to come into mm. the industry. Whereas now people are approaching us saying, we'd like to work with your clients. So these things are, are definitely starting to turn around in that respect. So over, over the last period of time, huge opportunity for learning 
we're all doing things differently. I mean, even, you know, you and I having this conversation, looking at each other on a computer screen rather than sat in an office or a nice restaurant in London. Um, What for you, Caroline, what has you learned, whether that's kind of professionally or personally, what have been the key learnings for you over the last few months? Mm. Well, well, I guess the first thing to say, um, Nina, is, is, is that um, it's been a real privilege, really, to, to witness the agility and the robustness of the industry through, through this period. I mean, I'm not directly involved in the operational aspects, but to see the way that our rail um, operators and network rail, um, you know, effectively were able to almost turn on a pinhead with the way that they change the services. And and people don't realise how difficult it is behind the scenes, you know, to change the diagrams and the rosters and everything else that was going on at that time with the timetables and keep the service going so that, um, you know, key workers and others could could travel, you know, through that time of real lockdown. So I think, you know, it shouldn't have been a surprise that we were able to do that, but I don't think we've ever had to rise to quite that challenge. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic to see, you know, the front line every day, just keeping on, on delivering it and supporting customers and, and keeping customers safe and cleaning, you know, the, the trades much better so you know i wouldn't say that that was a surprise but but you know that that was a fantastic thing um to witness and i think also actually we've managed to build up the services again um as we've been trying to exit from this situation and we've seen across so many industries and and for the government as well how difficult and at a personal level how difficult it is to you know you could go into lockdown but coming out of it's hard and actually i think the the industry's done a great job of stepping the service back up keeping all of the resources and the rolling stock and everything else in tandem with that so i, I think that's been great great to see um i think you know for, for for people like my team i mean we're involved very much we do design and development work and that's rather like consulting work so at one level um it lends itself to 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 working from home um, and I think the technology has worked way better. I mean, you know, if you said to me the day before we all went home, you know, what did I think it was going to be like? I, you know, I just thought it was going to be really very hard. And I think in many ways we adapted quite quickly to the mechanics of getting onto Zoom and team calls and, and doing things um, at a distance. And although I think it, what we learned was that that is a lot more draining uh, and, and somehow intense than we'd anticipated it being but but the other side of it is what you miss is is the interaction with people you know the chance conversations by the coffee machine or the ability to catch people in the corridor um and and certainly um you know being creative i think is so much more difficult at a distance you don't get that bouncing off um each other so i i think it's gone better than i could have predicted but we're just champing at the bit now uh, and, 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 you know, to get back in, in, into seeing each other. And I, th- I think I'd you know, say that, that that reads across to personal life. I think there were so many things that, that, that we took for granted, you know, and you and I were talking earlier, but the ability to just meet your friends or, or meet your family, you know, I mean, Christmas is coming up and we're now all, can we see our families? Whereas quite, you know, previously it was a bit of, oh, it's, you know, it's Christmas, it's the family, you know, are we going to survive? And I think actually really come to appreciate some of those things which seem quite casual. And, you know, I've certainly taken, taken for granted. 
Um, and, and I guess finally, the, the other thing that's been um, quite a great pleasure, I mean, I, I enjoy being outside and, and I enjoy outdoor activities, um, but I had some great picnics this summer, um, <laughs> initially out of, out of necessity, you know, that, that was the only way to meet. But actually, you know, I had to, you know, uh, I, I bought a special little carrier, you know, for my, uh, my picnic, my individually packed socially distanced picnic lunch. But what a great pleasure that's been, you know, even sometimes when it's been raining or not the best of weathers to just meet other people outdoors and relax and, and do something that actually feels quite, quite normal, if you like. Yeah. So, Caroline, in terms of obviously your day to day role, albeit remotely for the last few months, um, is that of a leader? And, um, and, you know, I've seen you in full flow as the bid director and, and the leadership skills that that takes. Obviously, in your new role, that's the, the key element as well. What I'm really interested to know is over your career, um, there will have been people that you have learnt from. And that sometimes that's, you've, they've, they've kind of role modelled how to do leadership. Um, on occasion, there might have been other people that have modelled how not to do it and things that you've picked up there that, yeah, well, I wouldn't do that. Um, so I'm interested to know your views on, on your style of leadership, but where it came from. What do you appreciate about leadership styles in other people? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, it's uh, that's a really hard question, isn't it? And uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit, actually, because uh, what I'm going to do is really go back to my parents, if you like, because I think sometimes the earliest influences in our lives, you know, are the most significant, aren't they? And and of course, you know, there have been many people along the way, but but it's quite interesting thinking about that. And uh, both my parents were involved in education, so so. Uh, my mum was a teacher, my dad's a lecturer, so education and learning was, was really um, important. I've realised that, you know, for me, a, an enjoyable job and an enjoyable environment is one where there's just opportunities to learn every day. And I think, you know, as we said earlier, that's one of the great things for me um, about, about the industry. Um, and and, and the, the thing is, you can learn from anyone and everyone. So, you know, it, it can be um, somebody that you work for, it could be somebody who's been in the industry 20 years, or it can be somebody who's arrived yesterday. You know, everybody's got something um, to, to teach us and that we can learn from. So getting better and, and just seeing new perspectives, I, I think is, is really important. Mm. Um, I also realised that um, uh, my dad in particular was a scientist. And I realised that from a very young age, I was expected to have a rational argument for anything um, that, that I wanted. Um, and, and, and in many ways, you know, actually that stood me in, in really good stead because, you know, particularly if you look around bidding or business cases or anything like that, actually you have to construct a very um, rational argument. I'm sure sometimes my, my team swear about that a little bit, but they would, they would definitely recognise um, that. Um, I think the other thing is that my parents, in all of that, even when I was quite young, treated me very much as, as an equal. Um, and that was something that they extended to everybody. Um, and possibly that comes from their background. So, you know, for example, my granddad started work in a mine at the age of 14. And, and I think that probably gives you a certain outlook um, on, on, on life. Uh, and I can remember my dad in particular um, used to say fairly frequently um, something along the lines of, you know, treating people equally doesn't mean treating them the same. 
and, and I think that's such a powerful phrase and a kind of philosophy, uh, really. And actually, when you get later on in life and you get into some of the management theory around managing people and everything, actually, that's the point, isn't it? You know, that old adage of do as you would be done by is not very helpful when you're working with other people because they're not all like you or me in this case. Um, so, yeah, realising that actually people need to be treated differently to be treated with equal uh, respect and, 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 and you know, um, uh, to get, you know, for them to develop and get fulfilment out, out of their role. Mm. I absolutely love that. I think it's so important and it, it, it kind of comes into so many conversations that I'm actually having with my daughter at the moment around, you know, just as she's learning, she's 17, she's doing um, sociology, history and law A-levels and there's some really interesting topics that are in there. Um, and we've been having some really robust debates around what equality means. Um, and mm. so I, I'm going to repeat that quote from your dad the next time we're having a robust <laughs> conversation. Um, yeah, I have no idea where he got it from or whether that was his own kind of philosophy on life per se. That's one of the things about your parents, isn't it? Is that when you're young, they know everything and, and they are the, um, the fount of all knowledge. And then as you grow up, you realise, well, that's not necessarily the case, but 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 doesn't mean that they were wrong. So. No, I bet there were some really great conversations went round your dinner table when you were at home with your parents, Caroline. <laughs> great. So you've, you've actually given me a fabulous quote there. Um, but as, we, as we're reaching the end of our conversation today, I would love you to share with me, um, if, is there another quote that you, could, you go back to? Is, is there one of your own personal favourites that might inspire you or motivate you or just kind of um, something you rely on just to make you feel better? Yeah, well, funny actually with, with this one because I, I have four pictures on my bedroom wall um, and I realised one of the reasons they're on my bedroom wall is I quite like to kind of see them early in, in the morning. So I think if I tell you what those four pictures are, it'll give you uh, an interesting uh, kind of view on what, what, what drives me. So, so one of them is a picture entitled Happily Dying of Chocolate. So uh, uh, I like my creature comforts. Um, the second one is a picture of a kingfisher sitting on top of a sign that says no fishing. So there's a little bit of, of kind of rebellion there. Um, the, the, the other is, is, is the daily call, which is first I drink the coffee and then I do the things. So coffee is, is really important motivating factor. Uh, and then the last one is actually a Peanuts um, cartoon. And, and it finishes with Lucy taking Charlie Brown up to the top of a hill. And, and she says, look at this world. Do you see any other world? No, Lucy. She says, yeah, well, she shouts as Lucy does. Well, live in it then. And, and, and I think that's just such a great quote for every day. I love it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, I always enjoy our conversations. You always make me think. And um, it's been really lovely to have this opportunity to have a chat with you amongst all the madness that's going on. Um, really <laughs> lovely to have a chat and just kind of catch up, hear your story and hear your thoughts on, on where we are and what the opportunities are. Hugely grateful for, to you for joining me, Caroline. Um, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. Um, always great to have, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, in fact, you're like Lucy the therapist, aren't you? I can sit and talk about myself for half an hour. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. A huge thanks to Caroline for sharing her thoughts and her own personal insights and learnings from the last few months. 
The next episode of Intuitive Insights will be with you in two weeks' time when I'm joined by Steve White, Chief Operating Officer for GTR.